please be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be together, isn't it? Well, it's a while since I've done this, so the technology's sort of, you know, are right at the threshold of my of my memory. Yeah, 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 but I can't remember when I led last. Yeah. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about this idea that we see what we're looking for culturally. And I think you're probably all aware of the fact that as a, a world that is sort of so influenced by the media, uh, the social media and all the other very various forms of media, that we... we we're kind of fed, aren't we? We're kind of fed things. Uh, what strikes me so often is that the things that come to the surface of the media's attention and that they feed to us. And, um, you know, for a while there, the, the, the war but, but, uh, in the Ukraine was very much front and centre, wasn't it? But now you hardly have seen it. It's as if it stopped happening, you know. And uh, I, we have our brother here uh, testify and... and and Ruth and Dan, they come from the Tigray province of Ethiopia. And when last did you see anything in the media about the conflict that's been going on there? So we wouldn't even know that it's happening, but the people are starving there. Or we hardly know that they're starving in, in Somalia and things like that. You know, it's just not, 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 not what's deemed to be kind of appetizing, you know, for and for the kind of messaging that media wants to get across. And but we know all about. You know, Johnny Depp, we know all about Johnny Depp. Yeah, don't talk to me any more about Johnny Depp. Yeah, but anyway, that's the thing. You know, it's that kind of stuff, you see. So th this is what I mean by culturally, is we see what we're looking for. That we don't realize quite how much we are being conditioned to see certain things. And you can see that there's some things that, there's some opinions that are kind of sanctioned and there are some opinions that are not sanctioned. And we find ourselves under the strange and amazing social pressure to just accept the opinions that are sanctioned. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, and that's what I mean here, is that culturally we see what we, we're looking for and what we're being educated and, uh, and kind of conditioned to look for. And it's a, it's, it, it has a real impact upon our spiritual quest, our spiritual search. Because we find that, um, you know, that something's missing, but we, nobody's talking about it, so we don't know what it is. <laughs> you know? And sometimes it can be that we're longing. We're longing for more of God. We're longing for more of genuine stuff. You know, we're longing for more of of the things that really matter, but it's just not in the public domain. It's not there. So we kind of find ourselves just with this great sense of what's the, you know, what's it all about. And we're going to be looking from John chapter 14. And this chapter, I've been looking at the chapters 13, 14, and 15 in particular for quite a while now in John's, John's gospel. And the thing that strikes me is that these, these passages, these chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are the conversations that Jesus had with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And they, they, are, they don't 
they don't show up in the synoptics, do they? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they don't mention this stuff. They're these little sort of snippets of common ground. But for the most part, it's kind of like it, it was another room, you know, another time. It was another event. Uh, and, and it's like John sort of says, you know, there was so much going on that night. And there was so much we were talking about that the other guys haven't mentioned. And because there was other important stuff they were mentioning, and they really had to get the, cro- the point across that Jesus was using that evening to, 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 to give us front and centered an awareness of the fact that he was establishing a relationship with us. It's a covenant relationship, and that it's a guaranteed relationship of, of our redemption. And he was getting that message across to us in the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup. And it was such an important message that I understand why they didn't talk about the rest of this stuff, but somebody has to. And so he just started starts to to just rec- you know record the the rest of the conversation that was around that and and uh, and and so much so that he doesn't even mention the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup but he does mention the washing of the feet <laughs> the bible's amazing isn't it it's wonderful so in it we we see from chapter 13 through there's a number of questions that the disciples asked Jesus and they ask these questions because he just freaks them out a little bit uh, by the fact that he says, um, I'm, I'm going away. You know, you're what? You know, and you can't come. We can't? Why not? You know, that's Peter. And he just sort of, you know, I, I suppose, you know, he was a lot more moderate than that, you know. But have you ever found a moderate Jew? I think, you know, I can just imagine Jesus says, I'm going away. You what? You know, because they were all up there and wanted to know. So there's a lot of drama in the in the room it's as 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 jesus says these things and and it just troubles them it troubles them and you'll see as we go through it this morning you'll see kind of how it does trouble them so before we we do that if i can run this little machine if you could ask jesus one question what would it be why don't we get into little groups and just have a bit of a chat? And if you've got children with you, um, include them in it because they're going to have some fun, wonderful questions. Okay, just take a couple of minutes. Uh, just uh, groups of less than five, maybe four, you know, two, three, four, five. Okay. If you, if you have children or, or you yourself are a bit bored, there's an activity here today. So um, uh, it's, um, it's, we've got a, a, a memory verse, um, words to remember. That I, we're going through a key pass, one of the key passages, the, and, and, and you're going to have to use your mind. So you might need a bit of help to see if you can find this memory verse. Um, uh, and then there's also going to be a drawing activity. So uh, you're going to draw what you think... Um, um, the father's house looks like in you know heaven. What it looks like, and there's prizes, you know. So I mean, you might you might that might give you incentives. So don't, you don't have to be young, just young at heart. And there's crowns here, but um, they're there. Um, any comment in your groups? Was there good questions that came up? <laughs> Hard questions. Anything that made you think? Did somebody say anything that made you think? Or we, we're all just we're all just wanting coffee, are we? Lynn. 
Why is there evil in the world? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Any easier questions? Deeper. The number one question was, Jesus, what is heaven like? Oh, good. Great. We're going to have a look at that today. Uh, Anything else? perspective I I think God you know we're blessed to be born in a Christian society but what about the the people that are born into a society that doesn't have Christianity as their religion um what what is yeah what yeah, yeah we're gonna interestingly we're gonna we're gonna touch out on that question as well we might pick up a little bit about what is evil okay well we better get on with it if we're gonna do all those things <laughs> right. Oh, oh yes, here we go. This John chapter 14 starts with the, these words. Yeah, go for it, guys. It's just that the, if you're in a family, uh, uh, just go for it. <laughs> John chapter 14 starts with these words, don't let your hearts be troubled. And it's because of the fact that Jesus has told his disciples that he's going to go away. And, and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Um, but those words are kind of like a word over the world, aren't they, today? You know, that so many people have a deep sense of anxiety. Um, they've, they have this, this, this word anxiety is absolutely so pressing. Um, and uh, some of the things, you know, they, they define anxiety as, as a kind of a state of, of, of um, tenseness. A psychological tenseness and emotional tenseness that you can't actually connect to anything in particular. You know, it's it's even if you have nothing to be anxious about, you still feel anxious, and that's why they give you medication. You know, to try to kind of lower that sense of tension. You know, uh, and um, and and I, and I think that there's a reason for that uh, unrecognized, um, you know, reasonless anxiety. But um, and it's a spiritual reason. But nevertheless, uh, that's the thing. Don't let your heart be troubled. The thing that I love about this word, these words is that Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, look, I'm going away, but don't let that trouble you. Don't let that trouble you. I'm going away, but don't let that trouble you. It's actually for your good that I'm going away. You know, and and he, he, he gives a different perspective on his absence. Okay, gives a different perspective on his absence. Now, the thing about the presence of God is that God is everywhere present. We don't have to ask him to be present. We have to ask ourselves to be present. You know, we've got to bring our attention, we've got to bring our hearts and minds to the moment, but he's always present. But, but there is this sense in us as people is that sometimes we find that's just not enough. And, and it's not just ordinary people like you and me it's people like Moses he's he's craving the manifest presence the Shekinah you know he wants God to do something that just helps him with the sense of sometimes feeling terribly alone in the world you see that's the thing so Jesus says here that sense of aloneness that you're so afraid of that you might think of as abandonment 
you know, that your mind might go down all sorts of rabbit holes like, what did we do wrong? I mean, we did everything wrong. You know, the disciples I'm talking about, you know, why did he leave us? Well, you asked that stupid question, Peter. You were always putting your foot in the thing and you sons of thunder were always causing trouble and things like, no wonder he left us. We're a bunch of nutcases, you know, type thing, you know. <laughs> Great. But Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Now, what he's saying is, he's saying is that we've got more control over our hearts than we think. See? He's saying, you're not abandoned. Just because the Holy Spirit isn't constantly hovering over you like a cloud during the day and like fire over the, by night doesn't mean that he's any less with you than he was in the wilderness over at the tabernacle or in the, in, the, in the upper room, or, you know, as I think, in Solomon's portico. I was going to say portico, but portico, you know, the, 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 arch, the, the covered archway in the, in the temple quadrant. That's where Pentecost happens, as far as I'm concerned. As far as I'm concerned, as if it mattered to me. So, so he says, this, when you have that sense of being on your own, abandoned, he says, you trust God, and the, and the grammar is interesting here. It's some, does it say trust, trust in God, or does it say you trust God? It, it's got an ambiguity there. And, and what it means there is that Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, you've got, a general, you've got a general sense of trust in the existence of God, the presence of God, and that somehow or other in this messy world it's all going to work out. He's going to work it all out. So you've got that underlying trust in God. So he says, well, trust me as well. Okay, so you're not going to see me, you're not going to feel me, you don't see the Father, you, you know, but you trust in his basic commitment to you. He says, have the same thing for me. You know, trust me as well. I may not be with you, but that doesn't mean I'm disconnected, that I'm passive, that I've got other things on my mind. And that's because trust is actually, it's a relationship word. You preached last week, Graham, I was somewhere else, but last week I did the small group, you know, hope is a doing word. Well, trust is a relationship word, you know. It's trust is, what I mean by trust is that there's something, there's something very, very different about, say, trusting a bridge when you drive over it and trusting the engineer that designed it. And the builders that made it. You know, what you're trusting when you do that, when you trust the builders that made it, you're trusting the, the integrity of the science and the people working according to the plan with integrity. When people, I'm looking at a, 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 you know, an air, aircraft engineer there, how subtle and how careful they build and design and build those planes. We just trust that they did it. You know, not casually, but that every nut and bolt is tight, don't we? So we're not so much trusting the plane as we're trusting the engineers that keep the things in the air. Get my point? So trust is a relationship word. It's sometimes non-specific, but oh boy, it matters. It matters. And it's learning to rely upon God's goodness, not as a theological idea, but as our experience of him as we search him out. In other words, trust grows as your heart searches him out. If culturally we see what we're looking for, counterculturally, 
we must look for God. We must look for God. We have to, be, we have to take initiative. We've got to exert our soul energy, our mental energy, in order to seek him out. And one of the things that has been happening in our culture is that our culture is telling us that you will see nothing of God in the creation. God and the creation are not connected until you go and look at it hard. I had a wonderful experience a little while ago with one of the people that I work with. This is the first time I've met him and we were going out to look at some great trees. We are going to look at some Morton Bay figs that were suffering from a, from a fungus and he's an arborist. And so we were out there and we were going to meet the local indigenous people, our leaders there, and because it's very much in their interest. So we're going there. So he just, we're talking, and I'm not disclosing the fact that I love God and more importantly, he loves me. And because I don't love him as much as he loves me. So we're, we're just driving along and he starts to talk, you know, and he assumes that, that that's true for me, you know. And he just says, I was out west some time ago, quite a long time ago, and, and uh, I just got up early one morning and I walked out and the vast expanse of the Australian interior just spread out before me and it dropped into my heart, there is a God. He said, I'd never thought that, but it just came such weight. It started my search. And when I got back to Brisbane, I went, who, who knows that, that stuff? Who would think if I spoke to them like this, they wouldn't think I was crazy? And the, the guy that came to my mind was Phil Stay. Now, Phil Stay, I've known Phil Stay for 40 years now. You know, he's part of Corners, uh, Northside. You know, and I go, Phil Stay? You mean Phil Stay from North Pro Yeah. So he goes and he goes to Phil and he says, this was what was happening. Phil was an, an engineer in the Brisbane City Council at the time. And he goes, what, what do I do with this stuff? Phil led him to Jesus. <laughs> in his home, you know. Wah! You know, I'm just listening to this story. I just met this guy, you know. And then he starts to mention all these other people that we know. And I go, wow, isn't this amazing? I think somebody planned this, you know. So we just had this story of the fact, you see, for he didn't realize there was a loving God that had been watching him for a long time, from the time that he was conceived and before, there was a loving God whose eye was upon him and he was waiting for that moment when he could just, ting, get through all the cultural crustaceans on the heart and mind. And he found it out west. Just checking that wasn't Casey. Somebody else crying. Right. Ah. Now, if, you'd, if you've picked up a sheet and you're looking for the memory verse, you're, uh, there's actually three, little, three, three sentences and you're going to find them in here. And I've just highlighted or you know, put italics on things that I hope we get a bit of time to talk about. And it looks like this is about as far as we're going to go. We're talking about heaven. Who is wanting to know about heaven? Out the back there, yes. One of the things I love about this passage is the way that Jesus talks about heaven. 
He says, there's more than enough room or rooms in my father's house or home. The New Living Translation translates it as home because it understands that's its intent. Its intent is to shift us from the idea of God's house being like a religious temple. The Hebrew word for temple is actually the same word for palace. (laughs) You know, the idea is there. And what that just means is a, a home that reflects the majesty of the person who lives there. That's what it is. So in this glorious home that reflects the Father's majesty, His glory, whatever His glory is, we might look at it, hopefully. It's manifest in, in in, in where He lives. And then He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And I can just imagine the guys going... Did he? Has he ever mentioned this before? I don't remember. You know, do you remember? <laughs> I had to scratch my mind, or my brain, or my head. Just my head, I think. In order to remember how he talked about in his parables, things like this. And they would have just thought he was telling stories. But he was telling them about home. But what do you think about him saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you? Surely he's got angels to do that job, or minions, or something. I mean, what's the son of the living God doing preparing, of getting the furnishings in place, and choosing the curtains, and, you know, whatever. What would you like You'd like flowers. I was looking at this lanky dude. He'd like, he likes flowers too. One's in the shape of a motorbike. Yeah. You know, you know, what is he doing? Preparing a place for each of us. You know, no wonder it's taken so long. When everything is ready. What language? So simple. When everything is ready... I will come and get you. Anybody doing the? You've done it. You got it. Woo! Woo! You too. Yeah. So when everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you'll always be with me where I am, and you know where I'm going. Right. <laughs> Just got to keep moving. What Jesus is doing and he was constantly doing and he's doing with us today is he's learning a different way of understanding and knowing. Recognizing that we're being conditioned by our time and our culture and that, that faith and knowing God is always going to challenge that. It's always, regardless of how accurately people may think it is. The Hebrews may think they've got a better handle on God. Not good enough. He's always going to challenge it. So, um, here's an example. When he talks about Father's house, this is, you probably know where this is. This is the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. And to my surprise, that's, you know, in, this, in, in Russia. And to my surprise, I w- didn't realize how many palaces there are in, 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 in St. Petersburg. There's just at least a dozen huge uh, pa- palaces where the one Grand Duke is trying to outdo the next. 
you know, and this is the Winter Palace, which is the most marvelous and wonderful one there, apparently. It looks like, to me, it looks like the icing that you put on a cake, the Coles puts on a cake, you know? It's, it, it's like ice cake, isn't it? Anyway, the point is, is that what you think of when you think about the Father's house? No, okay. So, if you want to draw what you do think the Father's house looks like, you might win a prize. But in response to Jesus' words, Thomas speaks out and he says, No, we don't, Lord. We've no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? They've been with him for three years, right? So you can see there's a cultural blindness here and how deep and how strong that cultural blindness is. He's talked a lot about these sorts of things, but they didn't get it. That's the power of cultural blindness. Open thou the young man's eyes, said the old prophet. You know, break that shell that's on the consciousness that so limits us in our search for God. We don't know, Lord. And Jesus, and I love this painting, um, because it reflects the consternation over dinner you know, they've got all these questions, all these things he's saying. You know, what's going on? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me, Joy. Yeah, this is your question. Okay. Now, what he's saying here is he's saying that culturally, when we think about the way to heaven, we're thinking about some kind of mechanistic or you know, some kind of a system, some kind of a way, something that you know, a staircase of some kind to heaven. That's the, what the culture says. There must be a, a stargate. You know, when we think about all the kind of t- movies and things we see, there's a stargate. There's there's something going on in the pyramid. You know, there's something that enables you to get to heaven. And Jesus says it's not mechanistic. The way to heaven is not bitumen or whatever. He is the way. That's a challenge to our understanding of the way. In other words, he's saying the way to the Father is not through some mechanistic system or some religious ritual. It's through knowing the Son of the Father in an intimate way that's based upon this faith stuff, this relationship of trusting, learning to trust him, learning to rely upon him. And to know if he says he's going to make a way, he'll make it. doesn't matter how. I know the guy's building it. I know the man who built the bridge. So that's what he's talking about. The same's true about truth. When we think culturally about truth, we think about maxims. We think about, you know, physical principles and, and things like that. The great physical principles are like gravity and these things are the constants. We think about those things when we think about truth. That's about the most the most bedrock thing. In fact, I don't know whether I said this recently, but Richard Dawkins was interviewed about whether there was anything, and he was interviewed by that guy who did all the work on the uh, on the DNA, uh, who's a Christian. And he and he said to him, uh, "Is there anything that would make you possibly think about God?" And Dawkins said, "It's not in my field of evolution that I to think 
because he's an evolutionary biologist, he says, there's nothing there that would make me think about God. If there's anything that makes me believe in God, it is the physical constants of the universe, that you can go anywhere in the world, in the universe, and gravity operates in the same way, and the speed of light is the same. And, and Christopher Hitchens made the comment, he said, he, he's recorded as saying that, that, that these constants, the distances between the planets, etc., things like that, are down to a very, they're down to a hair's breadth of accuracy. And if, they, if we were just a little closer to the sun, we'd fry, or a little further from the sun, we'd freeze. We're in the perfect place. So when you see those pictures of the universe, you know, and of our galaxy, the Milky Way, and there's an arrow that says, you are here. You are not there by accident. We are not there by accident. We are precisely there because God placed us at precisely the right point in the universe. Now, the truth, that's as close as people get to truth. The fact that there's things, that's the most unchanging things in the universe. Jesus says there's something more unchanging than that, and it's me. Isn't that something? That, sorry, but you're a lot better looking. Why? been wasting my time looking at that funny old face yeah. yeah get my point he says truth truth is not abstract it's personal it's personal and life is true too there's such a search in biology and all that kind of thing for something that will give us, you know, cryogenics and all that sort of stuff. We'll save some of our DNA in the hope that scientists will be able to bring us back later, all that sort of stuff. Jesus says it's not biological in the final analysis. It's personal. I'm the giver of life and the sustainer of it. What claims? What claims? What a self-revelation. But it's one thing to know that theologically. It's another thing to know it by faith and to trust it and to trust him who says it as the very ground of our being. If you've really known me, you would know my father as well, which is a better translation than what you've got there. Actually, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Because when I talk to you about relationship, Jesus says, I live that. That is the very essence of my being. I am so deeply in love with my Father and He with me that we are the same. To know me is to know the Father. And He says, that is what I am doing in you. That's the thing. Now look, I've got to finish, I know. I don't know, somebody's been... I've used the yellow microphone because the red microphone is faster. So I don't know. Love between the Father and the Son and God has planned it for us as well. Now as we come to communion, we'll read this. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. In other words, he's saying... Anyone who has this trust relationship, it's out of that trust relationship that these great earth works are going to happen. It's not because you've found the secret to power. You know, because I'm going to, uh, and even greater works, in fact, because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son will bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. 
the question I was going to ask, you know, I was, I was asked, what question would I ask Jesus? When I was at university, and I was studying this passage, actually, in, in the Greek language, and I came to this particular, you know, I just was, I, I just was pouring my, this stuff into myself to try to learn it all for, for my examinations. And one night I had a dream, and I found myself in this dream, standing on the outskirts of, of the circle of disciples with Jesus in the center, and he said this, ask for anything in my name and I'll do it. And the guy started to say, great, I want to be an apostle. I want to be a prophet. I want the miracles of healing. You know, I want to be able to do those nature miracles and things like that. And I sensed that moment was finishing. You know, what have I got to ask Jesus? And I, I just stood there and woke up. So I wasn't standing there. I was lying down, actually. But in the dream, I was standing there going, what, what, what would I ask for? I got out of bed and I knelt down and I said, Jesus, the fact is I haven't got a clue what I'm made for or what best suits me. I'm just going to have to trust you with that. But what if he's speaking about love, not power, as greater works? What if he's speaking about love, not power? Because that's what he's talking about in the rest of the subject. He's saying, what if, we, if he's talking about the kind of relationships that are absolutely transforming? What if he's asking us to become a reflection of himself and the impact of that in other people's lives will last forever? So as we come to communion, this is what we come to. We come to a Savior. I'm just going to give you some time just to prepare your heart as you hold those symbols of his of him of his body of his blood given for you and for me and for the whole world joy when it said there jesus said no one comes to the father except through me he's not talking about the physical distance between the individual and the father He's talking about the revelatory distance. He's talking about opening the heart to see the Father. You know? And so we often think that that's a process that we've got to somehow or other... How do we divide, cross that great divide? And the best way we can cross that great divide is by living that relationship so that our lives represent what it is to be drawn into the Father's presence. And we just can trust the Father for those poor people who have grown up without the revelation. You know, He's got a way of speaking to the hearts of men. No person goes to hell by accident or because God wasn't paying attention.
begin to unpeel your your communion symbols and hold that bread hold that wine when you're ready use it as a way of coming to him and letting your faith be so personal and so so relational that you know and understand that he's not asking anything of you but that you might seek him out you might come to trust him trust him with everything and anything with all these questions for which we don't have answers but we do have the truth Jesus the truth and somehow or other he's going to make sense of it all somehow or other he's not just going to make sense of it but he's going to make love of it and everybody of every time will not slip into eternity unloved unwanted doesn't mean that all are going to necessarily land up in the father's presence for eternity but they won't go in ignorance here we are privileged to hold these symbols of the one that loves us so much we take those symbols to our bodies to our hearts today jesus we come to you great savior and we say thank you so much keep drawing me lord keep drawing me keep growing my faith in you my confidence in you in order that i might live a life that glorifies you by the love that i have received shared with others in jesus name eat and drink let's try Mm-hmm.